I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. So we're practicing here natural meditation, which I should literally cutting through or seeing through, being through. The main Dzogchen practice, Dzogchen, the natural great perfection tradition of Tibetan Buddhism of Adriana. Tibetan Buddhism has several main schools and sects, but Mahamudra and Dzogchen are like the meditative lineages of those four sects. The practice of realizing one's own Buddhiness and seeing the Buddha in everyone and everything, every moment, not just sitting and meditating and hoping to get enlightened one day. Of course, there are many schools and traditions within and without Buddhism. Buddhism is an ancient religion, older than Islam, older than Christianity. So there's Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Burmese, Thai Buddhism, Southern Buddhism, Northern Buddhism, Vietnamese Buddhism, Chinese, Korean, Japanese Buddhism. Now we could talk about Western Buddhism, American Buddhism. Of course, there's no nationality in the path of enlightenment, but there are different styles and different emphases just like in Christianity or Judaism, which we'd be more familiar with, there are different schools, Orthodox, Conservative, Reformed, High Church, Low Church, Catholic, Protestant, Quaker, etc. over the centuries. Our practice here is based on what we call the Rimei or non-sectarian practicing lineage, non-sectarian not belonging to any one school or sect, practicing a non-sectarian, we may a very important word, the Dalai Lama often talks about non-sectarianism, 
so important in this day and age of extreme religious views and religious terrorism and so forth, dogma, fanaticism even, non-sectarianism, tolerance and open-mindedness, non-sectarian practicing lineage, practicing, emphasizing experiential practice and realization and development and personal and collective transformation, not just study lineage, not just study, not just education, not just ritual, not just monasticism, etc., not just belonging to a church or going to the Buddhist temple on one day a week, but the practicing and accomplishment lineage. Dribgu means practicing, it also means accomplishment, Siddha, accomplishment lineage. So we're striving here in our way to transform ourselves and transform the world, develop spiritually, especially through awareness cultivation, awareness practice, according to this non-sectarian practicing lineage. Mainly emphasizing here in this retreat, the view meditation and action of Dzogchen, the natural great perfection. Not Vajrayana practices, not guru yoga or deity practices, not yoga or breathing practices, not mantra chanting, not rituals, not visualizations, and so forth, not debating all parts of the tradition, but not what we're emphasizing here during this practice, non-sectarian practicing retreat. Of course, these days mindfulness is getting very popular and well-known. Mindfulness, which has so many definitions, but is basically the opposite of mindlessness. We all know what that is and the downsides of mindlessness. Mindlessness so many, brings so many accidents behind the wheel or in our life. Mindfulness has many advantages, of course, least of which is that we become calmer and clearer and more aware and wise and better listeners and more tuned in to ourselves and others, to our bodies and minds and souls, etc. Spirit and psyche, more aware. In the Tibetan tradition, mindfulness is less emphasized. It's more talked about in terms of awareness. Of course, mindfulness is taught. Buddhism is based on the original teachings of Buddha, the sutras, and mindfulness, the, the four truths, the eight noble path. Mindfulness is very important. But mindfulness might sound a little mental, or how do you practice mindfulness when you're asleep? How do you practice mindfulness when you're dead or in a coma? These questions might come up. In fact, they have over the millennia. So awareness is understood as a little broader or deeper category. Just like we don't talk about consciousness because one can be aware even when one is unconscious. Can anybody think of any examples? Like in a coma, of which much has been attested to. Perhaps like in sleep through lucid dreaming. And other examples. So awareness, but awareness still sounds very anthropocentric or humanizing, humanist, self-centered. Anthropocentric is the precise word. Because pure presence is closer. If you're in a coma, it's very hard to say you're aware. There's no you, and there's not much aware. 
And yet, you're, you're still sentient. The, you're animated. You're alive. Coma patients have reported hearing things accurately during their deepest comas because there's still some sentience. So what word could we use for that? So for that, we usually talk about awareness or pure presence or wakefulness or something. These are just words. Buddhism has a lot of these fine distinctions of meaning, being a 2,500-year-old inner science quote of mind, science of heart-mind. Awareness with a capital A is our real subject, the Buddha mind, the great sphere, the big totality that includes everything. It's very difficult to talk about anything if we're not aware of it. Therefore, awareness is included, understood, implied in everything. So we're practicing learning to be more aware, if you want to call it that way. We're cultivating like um, <coughs> Tibetan mindfulness, in a way, you might say. There are many different kinds of mindfulness. Concentration and insight are as one division. Natural mindfulness, like if you're interested in something, you pay attention, that's a kind of mindfulness. But also generated or intentional mindfulness, where you focus on something, keep your mind on it, is generated mindfulness. There's intermittent mindfulness, where the mind comes and goes, in and out of attention. There's focused or stable mindfulness, resting, a state of samadhi where the mind stays with its object of attention. These are technical terms you can read about to some extent in the meditation manuals. But going even further, there's dharmakaya mindfulness, as we call it in the Dzogchen tradition. The Buddha mind, excuse me, without which nothing can be known, nothing can be said without being aware of it. And yet it's indefinable because it's not apart from anything. It's the only thing. It's, it's, it's not a thing, yet it's the only thing. And it's all pervasive and yet nowhere. So this is a big subject, hard to define, like defining truth, love, or God for that matter. And yet there it is. So this is the subject that we're practicing in, in a kind of practical way, having a nice vegetarian, nonviolent, lovey, peaceful, harmonious sangha meditation retreat here. And yet, hopefully going deep, facing ourselves, cultivating these spiritual disciplines that millions have cultivated over the century and millennia in Buddhist retreats and other kinds of retreats, deserts, forests, monasteries and nunneries and so on throughout all the, the perennial traditions of the world. A Buddhism has a special emphasis perhaps on meditation, like some others might have an emphasis more on prayer or on faith or some other aspect. Of course, each religion has most of all the similar aspects, just a matter of difference of emphasis. Meditation is a big subject. Of course, we could read about it, we could study it. We're not really here to study all about that. But just to make the point that we're practicing this kind of Dzogchen awareness meditation, awareness cultivation here, it may look like we're not doing anything, but the instructions are very clear and precise and specific and keeping on the beam as intended by our lineage masters as the intent of our lineage and masters has come down 
to pay attention to attention to awareness itself, to trace back the source of all the radiance, as they call it, to trace back, to recognize the projector and the projections, not just to get caught up in the movie, in the sitcom, but to recognize the process of subject, object, and interaction. I see it, I like it, I want it, I like it, I don't like it, I don't want it. Subject, object, and interaction. The dance of the three spheres, as we call it in Buddhist psychology, Abhidharma, Buddhist psychology. Recognizing everything as projection and interpretation. Thus, it's very hard to argue with the statement that everything is subjective. Of course, that's a gross generalization, can probably be undermined. But very difficult to find something that's not subjective. But you can ask your questions. The inner lawyer will raise his or her own objections and they could and should be heard. That's why Buddha said, like Shakespeare, Buddha said something like, and again, when I say Buddha said, you know that I was, I don't remember being there, but they say, you know, the tradition says Buddha said, there is no unequivocal good or bad. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. That's an awesome steep cliff to climb. There is no unequivocally good or bad or positive or negative. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. So that's one of the meanings of the great Buddhist tenet, shunyata, so badly translated as emptiness, subjectivity, not what we think it is, empty of our concepts, hollow. What word could we use? Shunyata, voidness, not a thingness. We heard from somebody today about the fear of facing this emptiness of self. It doesn't mean there's no self in the relative sense, but in the bigger sense, there's no separate anything, really. Very difficult to find anything separate. How could we observe it if it's so separate? Thus, the notion of interconnectedness, interwoven, interdependent, interdependent origination, cause and effect. So, when we start to face directly this naked truth of awareness as the Alpha and Omega, the all-doer, and how pretty much everything is our interpretation, is our projection, is what we make of it. Yes, it can bring up some fears, but it also brings a great freedom. We find out who's on first. Who's doing what around here? Who's in charge? No more victimhood, no one to blame. That's the good news of karma. That it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. We can't control the winds, but we can learn how to set our sails and navigate better. So this practice has a lot of depth and breadth. It's based in the entire Buddhist tradition and really the universal mystical traditions. Of course, Buddhism came from Hinduism as Christianity came from Judaism. So a lot of the things are in common about rebirth, about karma, about cosmology, about other worlds. These are not things that we're really delving into here. These are not things that are so particularly unique to Buddhism either. So it's not that emphasized by Buddhism. What is emphasized 
on this path of enlightenment is how to become like a Buddha oneself. That is not a very common message in the world of religion. I'm not here to criticize any other religion, but it's radically different than the notion of one only begotten son of God or that only men can be priests, etc. Buddha's radical gospel, good news, or war cry 2,500 years ago, and this is pretty much what he said, was that anybody can become as enlightened as I, the Buddha, did. Male or female, old or young, learned or illiterate. Really, Buddhist or otherwise, are pursuing this path of awakening. So when I was young and I apprenticed with, lived with, studied with, translated for, lived with in refugee camps, the masters whose pictures are on the table in front here, the great masters of Tibet who escaped in 1959 when the Chinese communists invaded their country, who I met in the Himalayas, in Nepal and India, and Sikkim and Bhutan. They were old, old men, old women, old monks, old nuns, mostly, and would tell me all these things, including talking about death and impermanence and mortality and need to renounce all these fleeting things of the world, which will be gone soon, and, you know, old age, sickness, and death. The first noble truth of dukkha, suffering, uh, it was kind of depressing. And I was young. I was like Zorba the Buddha. I was like, hey, what's that? I was 20. What did I know? And yet, it more and more has all come true. It's kind of surprising. So I'm delightedly kind of taking a fresh look at things as I kind of, you know, turn the corner and make the last lap in this grace race. Just joking. It's all very fresh and new when you ha have an open mind to it and delightful. And it's really not about how to get from here to there and how many lifetimes it's going to take, but how to get from here to truly and utterly here. That's this journey we're talking about of non-dual tantric, Vajrayana, or the direct portal to enlightenment now. Even at the level of nowness awareness, the true Buddha with it, quoting my own Dzogchen master, Dujumun Pache. This is not something we hear enough of in our mindfulness and kind of new age, spiritual yoga, Buddhist ghetto in, in the West. But it's not something I'm making up either. Anybody can become as enlightened as Buddha did. Not only one Buddha, millions have. It's not that far away. For that, I'm really ever grateful. That's why I always say, thank God for Buddhism. Thank God for Dharma. So any questions or sharing, please? Hi, Peter. Hello. Um, you sent me to read the Dharma Sutra. 
the Diamond Sutra. In your writings, uh, you say the greatest generosity is to teach the Dharma. In the Diamond Sutra, it says to teach the four gatas with uh, my Dharma sister, Barbara he Fleming. Talk English so everybody can participate. What are the gatas you're referring to? That when talking to the, it's a four line something. Yes, I'm very familiar with it, but <laughs> we still don't know what you're talking about. The greatest I, I teaching is to teach the four, Dharma. the to Dharma. Teach the, okay. the Dharma. Okay. So in the Diamond Sutra, uh, it says the four line gata with uh, my Dharma sister, Sangha, a cohabitant, Barbara Fleming, who sends her love to you. What we were able to guess at is the, this four line something is view this world as a fleeting blah, 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 blah. And I wanted to know if this is what, when one says the four line gata is usually assumed. Um, I would have to see more of the original because there was a lot of vagueness in that, but that's a good assumption. Because that was the only thing we could find as a four line yeah, that you would that's teach. what I'm saying. Yeah. I would have to see the original to see what, you know, is four lines. It's often called the eight similes of illusion or the, some, yes. you know, if it's four lines or not, I don't know, because for all I know, that very ancient book may be referring to some other four lines, you know. Thank you. But that's a good assumption. Thank you. And since you're a professor and you love quoting chapter and verse, albeit with a little, you know, fudging in there about blah, blah, <laughs> and all, we won't get into the details, but let me just mention for your Dharma study that it's not in, just in my writings, I say that, what did you say? Teach, the greatest form of generosity is teaching the Dharma. But that's what's taught in the Buddhist tradition under the three kinds of dana paramita of generosity, noble generosity, dana paramita. The first is giving things and material aid. The second is giving protection and guidance, or succor, refuge, you know, a shoulder to cry on, an ear to hear, or giving of yourself, your time and energy. And the third is giving the Dharma. Thank you. In my courses, I try to teach that. Thank you. So, for our uh, you know, benefit, what is that four-line verse that should be taught? Thus should you think of this world, like what would you say, like bubbles on a stream, like what was it, rainbows, what, what was it? We should view this world like a morning star or a, a star at dawn a bubble on a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer sky, morning kiss by a dog who wakens me. Fudge, fudgy, <laughs> but good. <laughs> Echoes, mirages, and like a dream. Yes. Thank you.
We'll give you a gong. He should get a gong for that, don't you think? <laughs> Anything that has to do with a do kiss of a dog should get it. two gongs. <laughs> and the dog wakes me every morning with a kiss. <laughs> Cats. Mm. Let's not start a revolution. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Shannon. So I struggle with um, relativism, what I consider to be relativism. Maybe I'm, I'm such a product of um, Abrahamic traditions. I do believe that there's absolute right and wrong. And when we get into Shunya, you know, and especially the way the world is right now, there's some things I consider to be absolute wrongs that when I try to see it from the view or from a, you know, I, I understand that's absolute, but I feel very, very absolute. Right. And I, the, I guess the struggle I have in a lot, not necessarily these teachings, but sometimes in maybe even the new ageism of Buddhism is, you know, it's all a projection. And I do yeah, believe that right. some of this is very real. Yes. That's relativism. Thus, the absolute and the relative together in balance. It's very real whether you kiss or kick your child on the way out the door to school. And that will reverberate down the generations. It really will. Yes, we can all understand that. Or you give them good lunchbox or poison lunchbox. That's a very real difference. But what we're talking about here is breaking our attachments to our opinions and judgments, really not about the outer world. Of course, there's a lot of bad and wrong and all those. Notice the language also. There is nothing either good or bad, unequivocally good or bad. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. It's turning you back on looking at the nature of desire, you know, of attraction, wanting and unwanting, which is our life. Not whether children being born with crack cocaine addiction is good or bad. We all know what that is. Or whatever example you want, a horrific, worse example you want to think of. But this is, remember, about freeing us from attachment and illusion and to the bondage of duality, of dualistic thinking and concepts. It's not really very speculative about absolute evil and good or God or the devil or, you know. It's a, it, it points out, it points out, it's for us, it's for you individually to consider whether it's worth adopting. Just adding into the equation of whatever you think, you use the word believe. You said you believe that there's absolute good or an evil or something. You know, whatever you believe, just factor in. There are different perspectives on things. Different perspectives. That's where it's not. So the new age, agey type jargon. It's, it's all one, or it's all, uh, you know, a projection of your mind. That's way too loose. That's not Buddhism. That's Buddhism is much more the middle way. So, it's not, 
it's not that it's all projection of your mind. Your mind is also a projection. So trace back, you know. Your mind is a projection of all things. That's more the middle way. Without the things, no mind. So I think it's important to recognize that um, when we say things, and that's why I say that's a very steep cliff to climb. Really, you can't climb. You can only like, jump to the top or not or bang against your face against the cliff. There's no unequivocal good or bad or right or wrong, but except that want, there's only the wanted and the unwanted. So first of all, there's the word unequivocal in there. Because there's relative virtue and vice and helpful and harmful and healthy and unhealthy and you know, so on. But you have to admit that it's right to drive on the right, but only in this country. In England, it's wrong to drive on the right. It's right to drive on the left. So that's not a bad example of perspective. So it's not always right to drive on the right. Sometimes it's very dangerous and very wrong. So that's an easy example. Or, you know, people could say, as they will, and we do too, and being a religionist, you know, we all get caught in our own dogmas and our own perspective. Like, you should, I don't, one of my favorite, you know, religious, meaning spiritual films, is being there. Has anybody seen this? With a retarded gardener, I know it's not politically correct, but I don't have time to try to remember how to say it better. <laughs> the retarded gardener, Chauncey Gardner, who was like an orphan, you know, hidden bastard kid growing up in the house that they never let out, he ends up being president with his wise sayings that he only learned in the backyard garden because he's never been out of the garden growing up. You know, like, we always plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. And next thing you know, he's like the secretary of the treasury for this wisdom of economics. I mean, it sounds good, but in the southern hemisphere, we don't always plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. You see what I'm saying? So it's a matter of perspective. So that's easy to understand. Now let's jump. When we say there's no unequivocal good or bad, what comes to mind? Oh, go away. Oh, no, what's this? Hitler, he's bad. I mean, that's a nice bogeyman or whoever. But let's not pick, I mean, he's, he's overdone. How about cancer? Cancer's bad. I'm not sure cancer is unequivocally bad. What do you think? From the point of view of cancer cells, cancer is, is a growth success. It's a success of its own, you know, whatever you call it, reproduction and growth and survival. So, you know, bacteria bad. Well, I don't know if your stomach can't really digest without bacteria, so maybe be careful before you nuke it with antibiotics to get rid of the bad bacteria, the giardiosis, the amoebic dysentery. And I'm an expert in these things from my days in India. <laughs> bacteria aren't all bad, and so forth. Moreover, that was a little abstract about cancer. I mean, none of us are really sitting around thinking like, Oh, great, cancer is having a bear market now. It's fantastic. Whatever, bull market, I don't even know. It's really succeeding. Yay, cancer. No. But when I published a book called Letting Go of the Person Used to Be, Spiritual Lessons of Grief, Loss, and Transformation, people asked me at places like Omega and Kripalu, those kind of centers, to have like grief circles and talk to people, you know, about their experiences. And there were so many people. I couldn't believe 
who would say things with their full heart, like they, we, they're here because, I'm here in the circle because I got AIDS. I'm here in the circle because I got cancer. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It totally changed my life. It's the only thing that got me out of that life that I was so stuck in that I couldn't get out of. It opened my heart. It softened me up. I didn't realize other people were suffering from this. It was just news on the telly. That was a big blessing to me. They really meant it. So cancer and AIDS aren't unequivocally bad or negative. Now, if you're a, a medical researcher, then you know you're trying to cure cancer, and we hope we will. That's, of course, important. But we're talking about some other level here, the spiritual rebirth, the spiritual healing, the soul healing. That's very important. So even though we might die of our disease, we might still have a soul healing. The disease might help us transform. So this has a positive part. So perspective is very important. Things look different from different perspectives. So whether you're a theist or whatever you said, an Abrahamic or a relativist, you know, and you just you think about different perspectives. That's all. As you know, the middle way has a lot of lanes. It's not just the razor's edge. You'll have to adhere to the party line. We don't have to, in this dharma, you don't have to believe in, I don't mean just in this song. In Buddhism, you don't have to believe in rebirth. You don't have to believe in other worlds. You don't. It's not about belief. So I hope that's helpful. Yes. Doctor. My name is Bill. Um, speaking of perspective, I'm a complete novice. This is the first experience with Buddhism I've ever had. Sitting here, um, I wonder if this is an extremely narrow perspective. But what it seems to me is that Dzogchen, the natural great perfection, is simply saying nirvana is not some elusive goal. This is it. This is as good as it gets. The only reason why it's anything else is because we somehow or other give ourselves some kind of peculiar distinction or significance. And if we didn't do that, then we would have that view. We wouldn't see right or wrong because our perspective would not be centered about ourselves and our act. Is that just a a narrow way of looking at this? No, that's a very broad way. I think you should, I should give you a gong for that. <laughs> that was excellent. You threw in the word significance, so that's a little loaded word, but the rest was very, you know, I think spot on. Not narrow. But don't fall into nihilism. That's just, an, you know, materialism is everything is solid, what it seems to be. And then there's nihilism, nothing matters. Don't fall into the, that's just the opposite ditch. The middle way has a lot of lanes. But there's, there's these ditches of like materialism and nihilism on either side to be avoided. So just because I don't matter, I shouldn't view that nobody else matters. As long as everybody else matters but myself, then, then I've done the right thing. Um, I think you're on the right track. I'm not just hedging, you know. I just don't want to reify the thought form there. Yes. It's not that you don't matter. It's that everybody matters equally. And some people matter more than others temporarily, given the perspective. Like your kids are supposed to matter more to you than some kids you don't know in the other 
part of the planet. This is a survival um, imperative. This is not your selfishness. But whether you're mothering or smothering, that's where you and your neurosis interferes. Mothering is required of your children. You can't mother all of the, million, the billion children, or well, much as one might like to. But you mother your children, and they mother their children, and mothering goes on. If you're smothering your children, they smother their children, the smothering goes on. So it does matter. So it's not that you're insignificant, but in the bigger picture, you know, well, how much does it matter if you have a good air day, as we say, if you can concentrate on your breath today or not? If you have a good, you know, meditation here or a good week or, a, you know, it's like a good hair day. Who cares? Or a good hair year or a good hair life. <laughs> but seriously, how much does it really matter in the light of geological time and space, which is about, you know, the dinosaurs were here for 75 million years, they say, and they're gone. Homo sapiens have only been here for, you know, however you count, 100,000, 200,000, 400,000 years. It's a lot shorter. But geological time and space is so much bigger, the light years and all that. And yet, in the relative, every moment counts. If you kiss or you kick the child, who can argue with that? So it's not that we don't matter. So I, I, you're a quick study. I like your thinking. And thinking can only take us so far, but it's good to think about these things also, question and investigate. One of the um, little lists, you know, that uh, Buddhis Buddhism came from the ancient days, oral tradition, so things were memorized by lists. There was no tape recorders and, you know, modern reproduction educational tools, writing even. So uh, one of his teachings was the seven factors of enlightenment, and mindfulness is one of them. But another one is investigation or questioning. So it's good to investigate and question these things, not be anti-intellectual or try not to think. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for helping us understand the precious Dharma. Um, this is my first Dzogchen retreat. Uh, I've been to a few Vipassana retreats. It occurred to me this Those are no today. good. I'm glad ah. you, you, you finally made it here. Wink, I went wink. to dozens, I can assure Who you. Who needs them? Nothing happens there. Similarity. Yes, I'm just joking, of course. So, in, a, in the Theravadan tradition, in a Vipassana retreat, um, the instructions are very much, it seems to me, even with the shamatha aspect of it, it's about being aware of your awareness. Try to speak English so everybody knows what you're talking about. You mean concentration meditation? I know the translations yes. are tricky. In concentration right. meditation. I call the abiding meditation to start with and bringing your attention to the breath, let's say, or any object. Uh, it, it seems to me that the idea is to eventually turn your attention around to the attention itself. Right. And then in vipassana, or choiceless awareness, uh, indeed, you have to be very, the instruction to be, are to be aware of your awareness itself. Yes. And so the question occurred to me, it seems that there are parallels between Dzogchen and Vipassana. And I wonder, as someone who's a bit more, for someone who's a bit more familiar with the Theravada teachings, can you help, un, help me understand and speak to 
the similarities and differences between Dzogchen and Vipassana as far as the awareness factor goes? Um, it's a good question. And for you, I was giving that spiel in the beginning about mindfulness and all, and mindfulness and awareness and differences and same, you remember? And <laughs> I'm joking, not just for you. For that part of us, for the Vipassana community among us here in the American Buddhism wing. Yes. Um, but then, you know, you lie. If you were in the Vipassana tradition, you wouldn't be talking about awareness that way. You would have mentioned mindfulness more and insight. So that's the language of Vipassana. But concentration and insight, you know, develops this insight and wisdom of awareness. It's really um, almost, in, you know, parallel is not a bad word, but parallel sounds separate. So I would rather say like interwoven, like it's the warp and woof of the practice. So in the Vipassana tradition, could we have our swooping and climbing card? I have it on the highest authority that like Sharon Salzberg says, Vipassana is more like schlepping. <laughs> Please don't tell me to talk English. I don't have to translate. That's climbing up from below. Right? How much does it emphasize the precepts and the vows and getting straight and concentrate, calm and clear and calming your thoughts and concentrating and then getting to insight and wisdom, right, on that progressive? So Dzogchen is more like the swooping. Of course, it's parallel. It's co-simultaneous, really. It's like two wings working together. So, of course, insight, develop, you know, is wisdomful. So, of course, you know, the mindfulness is developing that and awareness of developing that together. Now, if you want to talk, you know, a little bit, so that was like a, a funny but very precise description of the differences. Schlepping up from below, carrying all of your shit, schlepping, you know, it takes a while, it's hard, it's like you're sweating. And then the swooping. So, the danger of schlepping is that you die along the way because you're schlepping so much baggage and it's so hard. It's like trudging through the mud, pulling a sled with all of your whatever. I'm just exaggerating. But the danger of the fast path, the, the, the instant enlightenment, is you have a crash landing. You jump out, but your parachute don't work good. You didn't work it good. Who packed it, etc. Well, you're skiing and you have a crash landing at the body. You may get there first, but not happy <laughs> when you crash into the lodge because you can't stop. So maybe schlepping and swooping meant to go together again. Not too tight, not too loose, as Buddha said, not too fast and not too slow or any other, you know, image you want to talk about. So, but then let's talk about some other differences, which we haven't gotten into yet. If you're going to compare things, you need to know the two things. So... Tomorrow I'm going to introduce, you know, um, eyes open and sky gazing and a few other things that are not taught in the Vipassana insight meditation, Vipassana mindfulness tradition. So those are a few differences. I'm not even going to mention about chanting and breathing exercises and whether you're a Buddha 
nature or whether you're Buddha after you know seven lifetimes or many lifetimes of what, what was the word I said schlepping to enlightenment yeah, that's all advertising anyway you know so I hope that's helpful of course this is Buddhist meditation retreat Sheila Samadhi Prana Prajna let's not pretend it's all in the Buddhist Mahayana you know, style type tradition, the Vipassana people, the Bodhisattvas, the Tantric, the Zogchenpas are supposed to be Bodhisattvas. We're all in this practicing pretty much similar together. And also we've all had similar backgrounds that are, you know, melting pot Dharma, because we have melting pot karma in this country. So the Vipassana teachers have studied Zen and probably yoga and TM and psychology and Sufism and some Zogchen and the we Tibetan practitioners have practiced some Vipassana and Zen and whatever those other things are, Sufism and TM and, you know. So, obviously, we're trying to activate the Alpha and Omega, the transformative ingredient, not just what color the shmata is, the way we wrap around when we meditate. Or what language is in the chanting? That's very tertiary, not even secondary. So I hope that's helpful. Of course, the sole goal of any Buddhist practice is enlightenment or awakening, whether it's explicitly stated or implicit. So parallel, of course, but not so separate either. <laughs> Last question, anybody? Bonjour, Lama. Bonjour. Sagaz. Uh, Sagaz, super. Um, how do we increase the quality of awareness if concentration is not part of it? We're not really emphasizing that here. You should ask him. Vipassana boy. So how do we increase the quality of presence? Or how do we remain more present? if concentration is not an element of the practice? Um, remember, this is more like a natural meditation or undoing the habit of overdoing. So instead of first trying to develop concentration and calm and clear our minds and then jumping into a more insightful or wisdom quality awareness, we're just starting right from the beginning with the innate awakefulness that's present, like through what Buddha called the interest factor, being interested, there's natural attention, and that's all you need to concentrate. Just like in your life, if you're interested in something, you focus on it longer, and if you're not, you just look out the window, you know, like in kiddie school. But the real question, I believe, between the lines is what you're asking is how to, like, enhance the deepen the view and the non-meditation or something since you talked about quality and so i would say practice and a little questioning and you know investigating like what's conducive to the deepening or the refining or the whatever you called it what you call increasing the quality of presence. yeah, presencing well, whatever word you want to put on why don't we talk in tibetan so we know what to rigpa so we don't have to 
make up these words. Namkranobarimche calls it presence. Many others translate it as awareness with a capital A. So Rikpa can neither be created or destroyed nor improved nor ruined. And there are certain examples of it like the mind is like water which mixes with the dirt and makes mud or other things. This is a Tibetan example. Rigpa is like the mercury from a thermometer when it breaks. The mercury doesn't mix with anything because it's coherent. It's, it's like it's unique in some way. I don't know. It's just an example. So how do you improve that mercury? It's really not about improving. It might be how do you use it? Like, do you use it in a thermometer or do you use it in some lab experiment or I don't know what? It's just there. So since we have it, how do we use it? That's really the question Dzogchen's addressing. If we are all Buddhas from the beginning, how do we recognize who and what we are, not how do we improve it? And then from that naturally comes, you know, Buddha activity, recognizing who we are and what we are. So, of course, there are practices to further deepen your view and stabilize the rig pub and keep using that word rather than saying presence or awareness or something. How to stabilize it, how to deepen it, like togel, visionary practice, there are postures and gazes, there's dark retreat, so you learn to see with the clear light of the awareness, rigpa, not just with your optic nerve, and so on. But these are all kind of... Mm, these are cruel and unusual practices. Not punishment exactly, but cruel and unusual efforts for those that still want to improve their rigpa that they've recognized, they claim. Therefore, those are practices for the effortful yogi. This seeing through is called the practice for the effortless yogi. But Togel and, uh, you know, dark, 49 days dark retreat and these other things, these cruel and unusual practices is for the effortful yogi, like Bob Marin here. He really needs to get on with it, so he should. But then there are others who just, you know, are happy to just rest in the view, nothing more to do. And I'm looking around the room, who should I pick on? It's not that I can't find anybody. I'm just trying to find the right person. Evelyn. <laughs> Evelyn is so far beyond effort that even though she's, I don't know, you know, like 99 or something, she still goes to work every day in Forest Hills running the park. Hmm? Yeah, sorry. Great neck. Don't believe me. De rien. Thank you all.